The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. Homes.com knows that when it comes to home shopping, it's never just about the house or condo. It's about the home. And what makes a home is more than just the house or property. It's the location and neighborhood. If you have kids, it's also schools, nearby parks, and transportation options. That's why Homes.com goes above and beyond to bring home shoppers the in-depth information they need to find the right home. And when I say in-depth, I'm talking deep. Each listing features comprehensive information about the neighborhood, complete with a video guide. They also have details about local schools with test scores, state rankings, and student-to-teacher ratio. They even have an agent directory with the sales history of each agent. So when it comes to finding a home, not just a house, this is everything you need to know, all in one place. Homes.com. We've done your homework. My mission is simple, to make you money. I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. Hey, I'm Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to Kramerica. I'll be able to make friends. I'm just trying to make a little money. My job is not just to entertain, but to educate and teach you. So call me at 1-800-743-CBC or tweet me at Jim Kramer. I love my job. But I don't love being a human pinata, which unfortunately goes with the territory. So on a nice day with the Dow inched up 26 point, S&P advanced 0.58%, NASDAQ gained 1.05%. Let's try to understand each other. I catch a lot of flack for what I do. Nature of the business. I try not to dignify the haters with my attention. But this weekend, I got attacked not once, but twice for telling people to buy NVIDIA, even as these critics pointed out the darn stock goes down every day. One of them even called the stock a dog, which is pure sacrilege, given that I actually named my late pit bull mutt NVIDIA. That would really hurt, especially when NVIDIA, the stock, not the late dog, actually rallied 29 points today. Oh, the indignity of being called out in front of others for something I am quite proud of, praising NVIDIA, the company, every time, every chance I can get. So I want to use this relatively rare update for NASDAQ as a teachable moment about what I do for a living, which is doing everything I can to try to help you become a better investor. Along the way, I identify my favorite stocks and buy them for my travel trust, a process I lay out my investing club bulletins, roundups, and monthly meetings, as well as my morning meeting and even the home stretch. And by the way, the next morning, the next big meeting, our club meeting, convenes Thursday at noon. I hope you'll join us. When it comes to the Chapel Trust, NVIDIA is one of our longest standing positions. Now, I originally bought it for the trust after I met the CEO of Audi North America more than a decade ago. I asked him about the incredible technology in his cars, and he said a ton of it was based on the company called NVIDIA. I couldn't believe it. I found it very curious. See, I thought NVIDIA only made video game chips. I told him so. He unhesitatingly came back and said I had to do more homework. And that's when I realized how wrong I'd been. The fastest chips, the ones with the best ability to project colors and movement, all belong to NVIDIA, not any of the major semi-companies. At that point, NVIDIA's stock was worth about $8 billion, not the trillion-dollar behemoth it's become. 
Now, I should have known NVIDIA would have a bright future. In the real old days, long before this encounter with Audi, I was great friends with a member of Intel's board of directors. He'd pushed the company hard to get into graphics chips, but Intel's management foolishly decided to leave this area to others. So I turned positive in this one back then, and it's been among the best calls of my entire life. Now, there have been moments where I've been more cautious on the stock of NVIDIA because I don't want to hurt people. The stock got clocked in late 2018 when they lost their ability to judge their inventory needs because so many of their cars were being bought by crypto maniacs to mine Bitcoin and Ethereum. When crypto sold off and that demand vanished, NVIDIA, well, its stock got put through the meat grinder. There's been other times when I've been asked whether it's still safe to buy NVIDIA after a big run, especially when we're going into earnings. I typically say I don't want to play that game. I like NVIDIA, but I dislike playing what I call earnings roulette. Which brings me to lesson one. I am not a hedge fund manager anymore, and I'm not trying to teach you how to be a hedge fund manager. At my old hedge fund, I'd actively try to game a quarter, read the research, find out the whisper number, meaning the most bullish stretch goal, by speaking to the research analyst, and then bet on whether the company would go up or down after the results. That's pure trading, not investing. These days, I can't even attempt to play that game. I don't speak to many analysts. I don't know what the whisper number is. I just know I like the company. These days, if the stock gets hit, I'll see if the quarter is actually disappointing or it's merely a speed bump, meaning the stock can be bought. The possibility of a huge upside surprise is merely the icing on the cake. See, I've come to the conclusion that what matters is the long term, not the quarter. Now, the late great Andy Grove, longtime CEO of Intel and one of its founders, explained that a quarter is a reasonable proxy, a good period to judge a company as as one of the. By the way, he wrote a book called Only the Paranoid Survive. He lays all this out. I used to believe that he was right, but there are too many companies with stocks that break down even when the business is doing well. Three months might be a reasonable period to analyze how a company is doing, but that doesn't mean the market can always analyze those three months accurately with how the stock is doing. That's why I'm extremely hesitant to pound the table on anything right before the quarter, just as a matter of principle. I don't want to, and I don't need to. Now, when the the stock goes up post-earnings, I'm hated for not recommending it aggressively enough. When the stock goes down, I'm vilified for not telling people to get out. Either way, I get pilloried. But I'm still not going to play the earnings guessing game because it's just not helpful. It's not what I teach. It's not what I do. Now, how about lesson number two? When I say I own NVIDIA, and that you should own NVIDIA, don't trade it. What that means is, as long as the fundamentals stay good, there's no reason to do anything except sit on the stock. It does drive me crazy that if you bought the stock at 480, it's high, and then it drops to 400, you're going to be furious at me. Of course, I never said you had to buy NVIDIA at any price, no matter what. I've said own it. I can't slap your hand for paying up after a big run, but even as I hate the change, but I just say own it. Now, if you top tick NVIDIA and, and now despise me, I say knock yourself out. I got so many haters already. What's a few more? We own the stock for the Chapel Trust. We don't feel compelled to tell you that today is the day to buy NVIDIA. Uh, up 30, got to buy some. We just like it. When I get angry and tell you to sell it, if you're mad at me, I don't literally mean that people should go sell the stock of NVIDIA, for heaven's sakes, which is what I heard said about me all morning by some real morons. I was being glib, which is how I tend to get myself in trouble. I call it a Philly fan instinct. What I mean is that you shouldn't own a stock like NVIDIA if you have a trading mindset where you, where you want an instant gain and can't tolerate a short-term loss. With NVIDIA, you need an investor's mindset. That's the only way to handle the numerous downdrafts the stock often finds itself in over the years from $8 billion to $1 trillion in market value. I can't, if you can't handle the darn volatility, there's no reason to own something like NVIDIA. Even my favorite stocks aren't for everybody, and they can't go up every day. 
Finally, people need to realize that NVIDIA, like Apple, is the stock equivalent of a living, breathing organism. Apple's gone from a computer company to an iPad company, iPod, then it's iPhone, iPad, wearables, service company, you know, everything, right? NVIDIA's gone from a graphics card maker to a company that makes the fastest chips in the world, chips that dominate the generative AI space, okay, graphical user chips. Perhaps the most important tech breakthrough since the iPhone, or maybe the Wintel personal computer. And these are what things that Jensen Wong, the CEO of NVIDIA, has told me. Given that nobody even comes close to NVIDIA in the AI business, I think its stock is a must-own. Now, I can't tell you what, when to buy it. I, I can't tell you the price to buy it. I say you can buy some now and some later, a lower price. Remember, never buy all at once. Let me give you the bottom line here. A very, very tough position for me. This whole lesson is about how to own good stocks, not how to trade stocks, how to invest, not trade. Trading is way too hard, unless maybe you're managing money as a full-time job, and even then it's not easy. But if you want to own a terrific stock that can go up 200% a year, which is what NVIDIA has done this year, you must recognize that it can also go down hard during the journey. If you can't take the potential pain, then NVIDIA, the stock, is not for you. Brenda in North Carolina. Brenda! A big booyah, Jim, from Brenda in North Carolina. Booyah right back at you. Thank you for making us lots of money. You bet. Hey, I don't know what to do with my shares of Johnson & Johnson, whether to take the spin off to keep the Johnson & Johnson or just sell Johnson & Johnson for Eli Lilly. Okay, it would certainly be appreciated. Well, Brenda, first of all, thank you for the kind words. Second, I would do the latter. Uh, Johnson Johnson, I own. We had a nice, small, small, not big gain in in the stock, and I got tired of worrying about this uh, asbestos issue and ovarian cancer and talc. And I decided, well, there's other uh, mesothelioma. I decided that's it. I'm done. I say sell J&J and go with something which is uh, actually less controversial, which is Eli Lilly. I think it makes sense. How about Sonny in Illinois? Sonny! Hey, Jim, a big Chicago Windy City Vinny's beverage. Booyah to you. Talking about going there myself just today. Cannot wait. What's going on? Hey, my friend, longtime fan, investment club member. What, love yes. what you do for us. Thank you so much. I'll see you at the Thursday meeting, of course. Yes, sir. And hey, Jim, you know what my favorite book is? No. Get Rich Carefully. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I got to do a revival of that book in another way, just to catch up on all the things we now know. How can I help you, kind sir? I tell all my friends about that book, man. I'm waiting for you you to come out with your new book. Oh, yeah, it's coming. I'm working. Taking a little time. (laughs) Got a lot on my plate. That's all right. You got to take a break. You got to take a break. I take some days off now and then. What's going on? Well, I'm looking at a company that provides luxury accessories, you know, branded lifestyles in the right. U.S., Japan, China, internationally. Okay. This company recently increased a quarterly dividend by 3.7%, and they have recently uh, announced an acquisition. The company I'm looking at is Tapestry, and they just want, they just recently announced that they're going to acquire Capri. Jim, what are your right. thoughts on Tapestry? Uh- I am not a fan, and I'll tell you why. As interesting as that deal was, I don't think it makes a lot of sense because they took down a lot, a lot of they lost a lot of money. How about Ralph Lauren, RL, which had a terrific quarter 
and is now down pretty much nonstop from its high of 135 all the way to 121. At one point, it was down almost a buck and a half today. RL, this is Doc for you, and thank you for this incredibly kind comments, and I'm so glad that we'll be together Thursday at noon for our club meeting. If you want to own a terrific stock like NVIDIA that can go up 200% a year, as it did at one point this year, you must recognize that it can also go down hard at times. This is why I say own it, don't trade it. On Made Money Tonight, it's a tale of two consumer products companies, new and getting. One is soared, the other one's faltered, but could both be worth buying? I'll give you my take. Then, it hasn't been a magical year for Disney, of course, but is the stock ready to roar, or should investors look elsewhere if the stock can ever go up? I'm going to go off the charts to find out. And you stumped me on a company called Sterling Infrastructure after Monster Run this week. I'm sharing where I come down on stock now that you called in about it. So stay with Kramer. Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Kramer on Twitter. Have a question? Tweet Kramer. Hashtag Mad Tweets. Send Jim an email to madmoney at CNBC.com or give us a call at 1-800-743-CNBC. Miss something? Head to madmoney.cnbc.com. Fact. Running a business is not getting easier on your wallet. With higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. Also a fact, smart businesses are reducing costs and headaches by graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. See how you'll profit with NetSuite, and then you can think of all the ways you could be spending the money you save. Company retreat in Malibu, anyone? By popular demand, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to NetSuite.com to start saving. When you're hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging to connect with candidates faster. Plus, 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed. Listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visited visibility at indeed.com slash mad money. Just go to indeed.com slash mad money right now and support this show by saying you heard about indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash mad money. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need indeed. Lately, last week, we got this tremendous quarter from Yeti Holdings, which makes high-performance outdoor products, especially coolers, drinkware, everything you need for a wild tailgate party. Stock stored 17% response on Thursday, breaking out of its long-term funk, going positive for the year. This is what's got me wondering. How is it that Yeti's 
has held up so much better than the stock of Newell Brands. That's a house consumer products that's a partial competitor through its Coleman Outdoor brand. Newell has a ton of other stuff. You probably you, you have the stuff in, in your closet. Elmer's Glue, Paper Made, Sharpies, Rubber Made, Yankee Candle, Crock-Pot, Mr. Coffee, among other things. But these are two companies that make discretionary fiscal goods at a time when consumers increasingly want to spend their money on services or experiences. Now, their stocks roared during the pandemic then plummeted last year, first showing signs of life recently. Yeti caught fire last week. Now, Newell was actually the 16th best performer in the Russell 1000 last month. There is a key difference, though. Ever since the market bottomed roughly 10 months ago, Yeti stock has rebounded like crazy, up 61% from its lows last September. Well, Newell didn't bottom until this June, although it rebounded more than 35% in a short period of time. It's still down 19% for the year. Huh. Interesting. So what allowed Yeti to turn things around so much faster than Newell? And more important, can it continue to outperform? Now, first off, Yeti didn't get hit as hard in the first place. While the revenue growth did decelerate, slowing from 29% in 2021 to just 13% last year, their sales never shrank. Newell Brands, on the other hand, went from just under 13% growth in 2021 to nearly 11% revenue shrinkage in 2022. For the full year, Yeti's on track to generate 6.6% growth. That's okay. But the analysts expect Newell to see a 12% decline. Why didn't Yeti get hit as hard? I think it's because Yeti's the dominant brand in the category now. Newell, by contrast, has a ton of brands that are all over the map. They have too many brands, but very few are in as strong as Yeti's position in coolers. You can see this difference when you look at their gross margins, what they make on each dollar of revenue after subtracting the cost of goods sold. In the last few years, Yeti's gross margin has swung from the high 50s in 2021 to the low 50s last year. Newell, meanwhile, had already seen vicious gross margin contraction in the years leading up to COVID, and they didn't get any boost during the pandemic. Their gross margin just slipped from 33.8% in 2019 down to 30.2% last year. They were already pretty low to begin with, thanks to years of mismanagement. Fortunately, Newell brought in new CEO a few months ago. More on that later. By contrast, Yeti took a big profitability hit when things got ugly last year, but that happened off a much higher base. I have to admit this move took a lot of people by surprise. Needless to say, Yeti's earnings proved to be a lot more resilient than Newell's when consumers pivoted away from buying actual stuff last year. And the contrast has only gotten more stark this year. For 2023, Wall Street expects Yeti to take a 3% earnings hit, while NLC Newell earnings plunging by 48% year-over-year. Now, the numbers are just better for Yeti across the board. They've got a nearly pristine balance sheet with more cash than debt. That's a nice reverse when it came public. Newell's got a heinous balance sheet with more than $5 billion in debt, which is a lot for a $4.4 billion company that used to have a pristine balance sheet. Yeti's never paid a dividend, but Newell's historically had a pretty generous dividend, at least until they had to slash the payout by 70% a few months ago, instantly taking its yield from 9.9% down to 3.3%. After the stock's, uh, the stock's rally last month, it only yields 2.6% here. The dividend got cut. It flushed out everyone who'd been sticking with this thing for income. Hey, by the way, that's why I always warn you. I say, please, stay away from anything with an inexplicably large high yield, like Newell had with a 9.9%, because it's often a sign that the dividend needs to be slashed. All that said, even though Yeti's held up much better than Newell, I think both stocks, and I know this is going to be curious, both stocks might be buys. They really might be. With Yeti, the bull case is pretty simple. Last week's terrific numbers. Uh, the company's on track to become a great growth story again, like it was when it came public. Sure, Yeti's sales came in weaker than expected, actually down 4% for the first time. But management raised, 
that's right, raised their full year uh, sales forecast at the same time, saying that the second half would be a lot stronger, especially the holidays. The current quarter might be pretty tepid, but in the fourth quarter, the consensus estimates call for 23% sales growth. You want to get in ahead of that kind of inflection. On the earnings front, they beat numbers and raised their full year guidance despite the tough sales environment. Now, I wouldn't be surprised if Yeti has an up year for earnings, even as the analysts expect a small decline. That'd be a nice upside surprise. As for new brands, this one is a turnaround story now that the, the company's got new management. Back in May, the old CEO retired. Pres- President Guy Miller, he'd been there for a while. Chris Peterson took the job. While he's not exactly a newcomer, he sure seems like a breath of fresh air. Do you know in his first day on the job, Peterson slashed a dividend, painful move, but a necessary one. He immediately saved the company $265 million per year. Then when Newell reported in late July, it felt like a kind of kitchen sink quarter you often get from a new CEO who wants to reset expectations. Everything was bad. The company actually delivered a top and bottom line beat for the quarter. But Peterson gave you low ball guidance for the next quarter, which is what really mattered, and slashed his full year outlook across the board. Tellingly, Newell's stock actually jumped nearly 8% response. Uh, trading like this was the last bad quarter, which is what you're always looking for. Last bad quarter is the single best time to invest. I'm looking for the same thing to happen with Estee Lauder, by the way, coming up on later this week. Finally, just last week, we learned that Newell's planning to close eight North American distribution centers by the end of next year, laying off 2% of the workforce in the process. They also plan to automate the remaining 20 warehouses, another sign that management is bending over backward to rain in costs, and they're closing a lot of their brands. They have way too many brands. Now, these two stocks represent two totally different value propositions. Yet is returning to growth uh, mode. It sells for 16.4 times next year's earnings estimates. Newell stock trades at less than 10 times next year's numbers at this point. It's a value play. Honestly, I prefer Yeti because they've made it very clear that business is about to come back in a big way. Newell still has a lot more work to do, a lot of things to turn around, but that's why the stock's so much cheaper. Let me give you the bottom line on both these. Both Yeti and Newell brands had a rough go of it for the past couple of years, but Yeti stock held up better thanks to stronger brand positioning and better management. Now that Newell's put in a new CEO, though, I think they can work, but these both, both can work higher. I'm not kidding. Yeti is an accelerating growth play, and Newell as a really interesting turnaround story with a lot of improvement ahead. Man Money is back after the break. Coming up, Disney bet big on gaming. What are the charts saying about this ESPN ante? Kramer makes the tackle next. The spirit of performance defines Acura, and now it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura's been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It offers flexible spending capacity that adapts to your business. You can also earn up to $395 in annual statement credits on eligible purchases at select business merchants. 
That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. Can the stock of Walt Disney finally get some traction here after spending the last couple of years in the doghouse? <laughs> Roughly nine months ago, the House of Mouse, which is a position in my travel trust, booted its failing CEO and brought back Bob Iger, who created a tremendous amount of value for shareholders over the years. And his previous reign of CEO was a long time. And I told you repeatedly I believe in Iger's ability to turn this thing around, although it's not going to be easy. However, turnarounds take time. And this stock got, it just keeps getting clobbered while we wait for Iger to get his house in order. Now, I worried it could take ages to solve the most pressing problems here. But last Wednesday, something interesting happened. Disney reported a seemingly ugly quarter. The stock initially got hit. Then once the conference call got going, the stock came roaring back as Iger finally told an encouraging story, a positive story. And it came roaring back on Thursday at a time when the averages were rolling over. The stock was up nicely in a bad tape, which is often a sign that we're looking at the bottom. Now, your stock can't rally to the teeth of a sell-off unless there's tremendous buying power pushing it higher. On Friday, the Disney gave it back a big chunk of its gains, and the stock declined again today. So tonight, I, I need a reality check here. Could we really be looking for a bottom? Is a bottom at hand? That's why we're going off the charts with the help of Dan Fitzpatrick. Now, he's a terrific technician who's the founder of Stock Market Mentor to get a better read on the stock of Disney. And while he's not bearish on the stock here, he's also not particularly bullish either. First, we need to look back to what happened when Disney reported its previous quarter, and that was on May 10th. Now, check out the daily chart from before the May quarter. Fitzpatrick was too optimistic when we consulted him about this one at the time. We, had, we did a big off-the-charts about it. He got it wrong. He thought there was a good chance we'd get a big upside breakout, in part because the stock had been making higher lows during a volatility squeeze. But he also recommended putting in a stop loss at around 96.50. We'll see about that in a second, in case something went wrong. And that turned out to be awfully good advice. If the stock fell through that level, Fitzpatrick predicted that Disney stock would be in for a prolonged period of sideways trading before it could mount another meaningful rally. Sure enough, something did go wrong. When Disney reported on May 10th, the quarter was full of uncertainty, which Wall Street absolutely hates. And Iger didn't seem to have a clear plan to turn the thing around, at least not one he shared with us. The earnings per share came in a little light. Disney Plus lost 4 million subscribers, much worse than people were expecting. Even that probably could have been okay, but Iger didn't sketch out much of a plan to get everything back on track, and that's what really hurt. So a lot of people dumped Disney stock in response to that quarter. Even if, if, if you believed in Iger's ability to turn things around, it's hard to bet on that turnaround without more details. We definitely didn't get them. It's real short on detail. Remember, the stock market's a prediction machine, but it can't make predictions without some clarity of the future. When you don't have clarity, a lot of people... Well, they just sell, sell, sell. Now, you can see it on this daily chart. This one goes up to May 11th, the day after Disney reported that second quarter. The stock blew right through. Fitzpatrick suggested stop at 96.50, okay? And when it did that, well, it was just, well, no kidding where it went. Opening below 95, then only finishing the day at 92 and change. That's down 9%. That's a truly hideous move for such a large capitalization company. And all this happened on five times the average volume. Look at this. Volume never lies, right? Uh, That tells you the big money wanted nothing to do with this stock. Now, check out how Disney's been trading since then. After melting down in May, the stock never really recovered. It didn't even bounce back to test the post earnings decline. Instead, Fitzpatrick points out that it's been stuck in a sideways action, 
with a uh, $85 floor, and that floor's been tested several times, multiple times, and it's held. Even after the positive reaction to last week's conference call, Disney remains below its 200-day moving average. Okay. Uh, that's a big negative for chart watchers. Fitzpatrick prefers stocks that are above the 200-day moving average because that indicates big institutions are actually buying the stock. That is something I totally believe in. In early May, he told us that Disney would be stuck trading sideways for an extended period of time if the stock broke down below its floor support, which is exactly what happened. So if you want to bet on here, Fitzpatrick says you need to verify that Disney's coming out of its base. Otherwise, you're looking at dead money. Now, when Disney reported last Wednesday, this stock only jumped almost 5% in a single session on triple its average volume. But Fitzpatrick doesn't think that that changed the chart. As he sees it, Disney's still building a base above $85, which means it's too early to buy this one. However, after last Thursday's run, he does see some signs of institutional buying out. He expects the stock will keep trading sideways through the next quarterly report in November if Iger can tell a good story again. That's when Fitzpatrick believes we could get a breakout. Me, I think he's wrong. I think he liked it too much here. I, 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 I fell prey to that, too, I admit. But I think that after that conference call and the kitchen sink quarter, I think you buy the stock at Disney, and that's exactly what we're telling charitable trust holders, uh, people who follow my charitable trust, the investment committee, and by, <laughs> the investment club. And just to be sure, the investment club meets on Thursday at noon, and we'll be talking about the stock of Disney as perhaps one of my favorite stocks because I intend to rank the ones by favorites. Now, take a look at the weekly chart of Alphabet, one of the few members of the Magnificent Seven that's still hanging in there near its 52-week high and also a travel trust stock. Alphabet's got a nice pattern of higher highs and higher lows, and the stock remains above its 20-day moving average. Okay, so that's the red line. It's above. You can see that. Uh, which suggests we've got a persistent uptrend. Stock's currently at 131. Fitzpatrick says you can see a ceiling of resistance at 150. I'll take that any day of the week. That's about a dollar below the all-time high. But that high is two years old, and he doesn't think the resistance will be particularly relevant if tech catches fire again in the fall. We don't know. All right, how about Alphabet's daily chart? Look at the daily. Okay, earlier this year, the 50-day moving average crossed above the 200-day. Oh, my God, the people love that. The red crossed above the green, okay, right there. Now, that is a classic sign of a powerful uptrend, all right? While Alphabet's been testing its 50-day moving averages and floor support in the last couple of months, that floor's held. In recent weeks, the stock's been trading sideways. Okay, we get that. That's all right. Consolidating in a series of lower highs and higher lows on very light volume. This is what Fitzpatrick wants to see. If we had heavy volume, it would mean big institutional investors are selling aggressively. Trading sideways on light volume is the hallmark of traders cashing out, not investors abandoning the company, just traders. For Alphabet to work going forward, Fitz says we need to see an upside breakout on heavy volume uh, until the stock can jump above its current ceiling of resistance. He thinks it'll be stuck in a holding pattern. That's also why he recommends a $115 stock loss order in, in case something goes wrong. I think his stop loss order is is wrong. I think the stock goes higher. I think this is the probably along with Amazon, the two best of the magnificent seven. The bottom line, 
The charge is interpreted by Dan Fitzpatrick, whom, again, remember, I am disagreeing with him on both stocks, okay? Suggests that Disney's not yet ready to roar. I think it is ready to roar, uh, because I like what Bob Iger had to say in the last conference call. He much prefers Alphabet here. He thinks it's closer to the kind of upside breakout that can lead to a major uh, move. I agree with that, but the idea of having to have a stop loss at 115, no. I just think it's going higher. I want to go to Mary in Idaho. Mary. Greetings from Idaho, Jim. I have a small uh, position in Apple, and I noticed it's been doing really well. And then at the end of July, it took quite a nosedive. And I was wondering, have things changed and whether I should buy, sell, or hold my position? Okay, I want you to hold, and I'll tell you why. I mean, a lot of people didn't like the quarter, and I think those people were wrong. And the reason why I think they're wrong is that Apple absolutely gave you a terrific, terrific quarter. And people were concerned very much that maybe this was, again, a no-growth quarter. But this is not an important quarter for Apple. It's not a new uh, Apple iPhone. I gave my daughter the 14 yesterday, a 14 Pro. And it's like, oh, I wish I could give her the new one, but we don't have a new one yet. It's the new one that will matter, and I think it's going to sell great. Let's go to Glenn Glenn in California. Glenn. Hello, sir. Glenn, how are you? I'm well, I'm well. I hope you're well, too. Yes, I am. Thank you for asking. Cool. This call concerns the letters AT&T. I'm interested in the phone, and I want to say a shout-out to all our friends and beloved in Hawaii. Let's yes. hope everything oh, my. gets Jeez, what a disaster. Okay? Absolutely. What a disaster. We hope they do okay. AT&T, I don't like it, uh, and I don't like it because of the balance sheet. I don't like it because uh, of leverage. They've got a yield that I don't know if they can continue to support. And I think their longer-term prospects seem pretty darn bleak. Wow. Got a cold as I see it. The charts, as interpreted by Dan Fitzpatrick, suggests that Disney's not yet ready to work. I disagree with that. Alfred, however, he thinks it's close to the kind of upside breakout that can lead to a major move higher. I agree with him. I don't think we need to stop. We got much more mid money yet. It may be the dog days of summer, but I'm still turning in my homework. Don't miss my take on a name that you stumped me on, and it's really good. Then, with AI stocks retreating from their highs, is this just an example of a classic fad that has run its course? I'm showing you where I come down on a very, very hot debated segment. And order calls rapid fire in tonight's edition of the Lightning Round. So stay with Kramer. taking your calls, not just because I want to answer your questions, but because this show's got the smartest audience in television, an audience that often gives us great ideas. For example, over a month ago, Steve in New York asked about Sterling Infrastructure. That's a smaller civil construction company. It's based in Texas. I hadn't been following it. I said I'd get back to it. This is an engineering construction firm, a group I like a great deal, because they're on track to make fortunes. From all the federal largesse that's finally kicking in from Biden's massive spending bills. Sterling Infrastructure has three main lines of business. There's an e-infrastructure division where they provide site development services for data centers, e-commerce distribution centers, and advanced manufacturing facilities. There's the transportation division where they do classic infrastructure projects like rehabilitating, uh, rehabilitating highways and bridges. And then there's the building solutions division, and that's focused on residential and commercial construction. 
all hot areas. While Sterling's been a publicly traded company for over two decades, its stock never really took off until the past few years, as it vaulted from the high single digits during the depths of the COVID crisis to an all-time high of $82 earlier this month. Now, initially, this multi-year run was all about data centers and, and e-commerce. Sterling made a couple of acquisitions in 2019 and 2021 to bulk up its business in these areas. So they made a mint as demand for new data centers and fulfillment centers exploded during the pandemic. From 2019 through 2022, the company's earnings more than tripled, and they're expected to keep growing like crazy this year. However, the stock's going parabolic this year. It's up 144% for 2023 so far, thanks to tremendous earnings numbers and the possibility of even better results as the federal infrastructure spending flows down to actual companies. And here's where I owe Steve in New York an apology, because I wish I'd gotten back on the name a bit sooner. I just didn't get to the homework. See, Sterling just reported a magnificent set of numbers last week. It was a phenomenal beat and raise quarter that sent the stock soaring 32% over the course of the week. The company delivered a gigantic revenue beat and massive 34-cent earnings beat off a 93-cent basis with a much higher than expected backlog, one of the best quarters of this entire reporting period. Even better, management raises guidance across the board for the full year. They're talking about earning four to four twenty uh, per share. Do you know that uh, that's up from three forty three at the midpoint of their previous forecast? Like I said, one of the best earnings reports of the quarter. All of Sterling's businesses are on fire right now. The e-infrastructure segment, which now accounts for roughly half of Sterling sales, had a record backlog with management calling out continued strong demand for new data centers, plus some crucial wins in advanced manufacturing. They're helping to build new plants for Hyundai and Rivian. Yes, the the, uh, e-truck company, basically, in Georgia. CEO Joe Cutillo sounds incredibly optimistic about this business, saying it should remain Sterling's quote. Fastest growing, highest margin segment for the next several years, end quote. When the conference call, he talked about a pipeline of large manufacturing projects tied to renewable energy, batteries, and other next-gen manufacturing as companies bring their factories back to U.S. to prevent future supply chain mishaps. What a story. He says these onshoring-related opportunities are, and I quote again, larger than we've ever imagined, end quote. This is where the money is. Darn it. Cotillo goes on to say, quote, data center activity is poised to accelerate even further as data demand continues to surge, end quote. Ultimately forecasting strong double-digit organic growth for this division over a multi-year period. Just insanely positive, particularly because some people were worried that things were going to slow down after an overbuild. Looks like that's wrong. But still, these other divisions, they're doing quite well, too. The transportation business is up 6% year over year, with management noting that their backlog is being boosted by all the government infrastructure programs, like we thought. Just last month, Sterling won a $216 million contract from Utah's Department of Transportation. Management plans should be selective about the government work they bid on in order to bolster their margins. Most companies are taking anything yet. Finally, the building solutions division is thriving with sales up 30% year over year, thanks to the peculiarities of the housing market that we know, right? With virtually no existing homes available for sale, fueling the demand for new home construction, which Sterling participates in. Home building isn't supposed to catch fire like this while the Fed's still tightening. But we have such a massive housing shortage in this country that it turns out higher rates can't derail this industry. As for commercial construction, it was up 50% year-over-year, with much of that coming from apartment buildings, and we're short apartment buildings, too. Overall, I think Sterling's infrastructure is a remarkable, just a remarkable story. I can't believe I didn't know it. 
My only regret is that I didn't circle back to this one sooner. I apologize to you, too, because we sure did miss last week's spectacular move. Of course, given that the stock surged 30% last week, and we can, look, we can just sit here and kick ourselves, but you got to think twice about buying sterling stock up here now. My gut says the stock needs to pull back before you can do any buying really safely. However, when you look at the numbers, it's not like this thing is wildly expensive. Sterling sells for less than 20 times the midpoint of this year's next uh, this year's new earnings forecast. Historically, the stock's traded closer to 10 times earnings, but that was back when Wall Street thought Sterling's business was far more episodic, up, down, up, down. Right now, they've got huge and consistent demand from data centers and high-tech factory construction and all the federal spending programs that are hitting over the next few years, which suggests we're looking at an earnings explosion in the not-too-distant future, although it seems like they already have one, frankly. I wouldn't be surprised if the estimates turn out to be too low, though, meaning the sterling stock still has more upside. Bottom line, this is exhausting. At the end of the day, I hate to chase. So if you like sterling infrastructure, and I don't blame you if you do, my hope is that you can have some patience and buy it into weakness. Ideally, we'll get another indiscriminate market-wide sell-off that gives you a better price on this one. But honestly, if you're looking at sterling for the long run, I think you can actually justify putting on a small position even up here than waiting for a pullback to buy more. Worst case, there's no pullback, and you have a small position in a stock that's going up nicely. They have money's back yet for the break. Coming up, Kramer wants to hear from you. Your calls on the thunderous lightning round. Next. It is time. It's time for the lightning round. And then the lightning round is over. Are you ready? The lightning round is over. Start with Scott in North Carolina. Scott. Booyah, Jimbo. Booyah, Scott. What's happening? Great speaking with you again. This Same. company plunged 16% after earnings last week, Jim. Still has short interest of 20% today. Should I plug in or plug out of Plug Power? Well, I think the only way you're going to really be able to plug in is if you think this is going to, someone's going to engineer a short squeeze here. And I've got to tell you, that is not a good reason to own a stock. Those numbers were terrible. I say stay away. Let's go to Sudir in Texas. Sudir. Sudir, you're up. All set, Sudir. Okay, perhaps we should go to Larry in Florida. Larry. Up and chill. Yo, what's happening, man? Chill says hi. So I started nibbling on a Modi business at what I thought was a fair price. And then the stock got crushed after earnings. Uh, do I have an abandoned gem or a value trap in IFF? In IFF, I've got to tell you, they need to, they need to actually make a clean breast of things by coming on Mad Money and explaining what went wrong. Since when we heard from the last, they were in the 100s. Because I find it embarrassing to stay away from TV like that. So I welcome the company to join me, because otherwise I will tell you, you got a real value trap on your hands. I'm going to David in Texas. David. Yo, David, what's happening? Not a lot. Um, so I've had my, had my eye on this stuff for a couple months. Missed the run up to 75. They pretty much took a dive on earnings. How's PayPal looking with the new CEO? PayPal, this guy Alex Chris is the real deal. I happen to like him to it very much. I think I like him very much. I think it was time. It was the right thing for uh, Dan to step down earlier rather than stay uh, lame duck the whole year. And I wish them very well. I don't want to own the stock. I prefer the stocks of MasterCard and Visa. 
over Square and PayPal. One's old, one's new. Let's go to Mike in New Jersey. Mike. What's up, Jim? Ah, not much, Mike. What's happening to you? Good, not much. I was just curious about motive, uh, motive pair with the $15 million uh, insider buy-in. Is that a buy now? I, I'm very confused about why that stock sells at such a low price earnings multiple. And it's one of those, once again, I was I was very soul searching this weekend. I said to my wife, I have so many new companies that I don't know well enough. It does drive me crazy, including Motive Care. So all I can promise is homework. What's the point of the lightning round? Just give an answer. No, have an informed answer. Let's go to Steven in Arizona. Steven. Booyah, Kramer. Booyah, Steven. How are you doing? Great. You're very hot here in Arizona. Long-time listener, first-time caller. Oh, excellent. Thing to you is 3M. Buy? No, 3M has still got... Now, they're out of the woods when it comes to one one thing that they have, which is the... It looks like a a lot of their uh, forever chemicals problems are finished. They still have the combat arms ear tinnitus problem. Um, as a sufferer of tinnitus and as a member, as the spokesperson for the American Migraine Foundation, I can tell you that they have, and for the Brain Foundation, geez, they've got some real issues here when it comes to the problems with the combat arms trial. When that's finished, maybe we can relook at it and see if they're doing the right thing. How about Greg in Florida? Greg. Hey, good evening, Jim. Booyah. Good evening, Greg. Booyah, booyah, booyah. What's up? Hey. Uh, First-time caller, recently a new club member, and I'm learning a lot, and I'm really enjoying the club. And I will see you at the Thursday noon meeting, which is really going to be fun. I'm going to be regular stocks. How can I help you? Okay. uh, On holding. Now, on holdings reports tomorrow, and I think it could be good, but the stock went down last time on a good number. But I do like the stock very much. And that, ladies and gentlemen, conclusion of the Lightning Round. The Lightning Round is sponsored by TD Ameritrade. Coming up, is an AI pullback a reason for fear? Kramer explains next. When we watch the artificial intelligence stocks retreat from their lofty highs, we find ourselves wondering, have we gotten hat again? AI, is it just another fad, like the electric vehicle stocks, the charge points, the quantum scapes, the lucids, or maybe the cannabis stocks, another group that soared in the, uh, to the stratosphere and then quickly plummeted back to Earth? Here's the good news. Unlike those other groups, the AI stocks have huge profits, so their stocks won't totally collapse, of course. In terms of electric vehicle plays, Quantum Scape's basically a science experiment. Lucid made a nice car. They even won the 2022 Motor Trend Car of the Year Award. But it was a leap of faith to assume they could scale manufacturing and see sustained uh, demand at very high price points. Charge Point's basically a commodity business in support of electric vehicles, which are growing at a lot slower pace than we thought so. Plus, all three were SPAC deals, a kind of legal con to go public, while evading the SEC's stringent IPO regulations. And don't even get me started on the cannabis stocks. We own Constellation Brands for the Chapel Trust, and Constellation invested billions in canopy growth, which amounted to nothing more than the incineration of cash. I know people fear that artificial intelligence could play out the same way, turning to a giant waste of time and money. We've seen these tragedies unfold, and we now seem to be reflexively believing that all powerful new trends will be short-lived fads, including AI. Which brings me back to the good news. These companies that have been boosted by AI are, for the most part, extremely profitable. 
But the bad news, other than NVIDIA and its accolades, no company seems to have really harnessed AI for profit. Sure, they're spending on it. But whenever I ask, hey, what are you really making on AI? The answer is nothing. Again, with the exception of NVIDIA, which makes the chips that make the technology possible, NVIDIA's got so many other orders that are having trouble meeting demand. There's not much here. Oh, sure, these CEOs never flat out saying they're not making any money from AI. They won't say that. What they say is that with AI, they're streamlining their support system and making their knowledge workers more valuable, making that dichotomy even more crucial. Now, I did hear Elon Musk say he needs a supercomputer to make his cars more than just cars. And so far, only NVIDIA can make that possible. I saw the advertising companies losing a lot of value, even as NVIDIA's Jensen Wong has praised them as partners. I, I get it. You don't really need all those copywriters if ChatGPT can do the same thing, but better and cheaper. Otherwise, though, it's a technology in search of uses. And I've never seen something like that since 1998, when we saw lots of money flow into the Internet. Billions and billions of dollars back when that was a lot of money. More than 300 companies came public during that period proclaimed themselves as Internet-related. But many had no profits and some barely had any sales. In the end, we were right to be enthusiastic about the Internet. It changed everything. But most of the dot-com stocks really were just garbage. Even the good ones took a long time to recover from the crash. The interesting thing is that about that year is other than Amazon, eBay, Priceline, now Booking Holdings, maybe AOL and Yahoo, few of the dot-coms amounted to anything. Now, I do fear that other than NVIDIA, none of the pure AI stocks will mount to anything. And I am concerned that big companies will regret their AI hype to us. I know Microsoft, the company furthest along with the technology, didn't really pound the drum on it when it marked. Maybe, I think that actually marked the peak in AI stocks during their quarter. And it's all been downhill since. That said, most of them rebounded hard today, led by NVIDIA, of course, which jumped by because of a very bullish note from Morgan Stanley. I talked about that at the top of the show. I think that Microsoft, Google, ServiceNow, Amazon, and Cisco, watch Cisco, it's doing better than any of them, might be winners someday after they build out their power. Maybe Snowflake, too. But right now, we're starting to realize that it's pretty much all hype, even for the best of breed players, because nobody knows what to do with AI. At least we knew what to do with cannabis and electric vehicles, although hopefully not at the same time. Until someone can give me a genuine use case where generative AI actually saved a business money by cutting support staff or increasing the value of its knowledge workers, the mere mention of AI enough these days, it can send a stop cascading south. That's just where we are in these dog days of August. We're sick of AI, even as it might just have begun. I'd like to say there's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise I'll find it just for you right here on Mad Money. I'm Jim Cramer. See you tomorrow. Last call starts now. All opinions expressed by Jim Cramer on this podcast are solely Cramer's opinions and do not reflect the opinions of CNBC, NBC Universal, or their parent company or affiliates, and may have been previously disseminated by Cramer on television, radio, internet, or another medium. You should not treat any opinion expressed by Jim Cramer as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his opinion. Cramer's opinions are based upon information he considers reliable, but neither CNBC nor its affiliates and or subsidiaries warn its completeness or accuracy, and it should not be relied upon as such. To view the full Mad Money Disclaimer, please visit cnbc.com forward slash disclaimer. From a flat tire in the city to a dead battery on a distant drive, AAA is partnering with T-Mobile for Business to accelerate response times and get more drivers back on the road fast. Our nationwide connectivity powers location telematics, so AAA's fleet can find stranded drivers quickly while being fully equipped with the in-vehicle tools to have answers when they get there. This is elevating the member experience. This is AAA with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. 